before we jump into the passage, uh, some of you may know that this is this our last Sunday uh, before the sabbatical starts on Tuesday. So I just thought I'd share a couple of uh, four things that as I've reflected leading into this that I'm thankful to the Lord for. Uh, thankful also to Crossway, and they're pretty simple. But uh, first of all, I'm just thankful that we have a policy, a sabbatical policy, uh, right? So um, you can read the policy. Uh, it's, it's right on our we can get you the document. I think it might have been an email at some point, but you can read it. Uh, half of it is spent uh, essentially doing spiritual reflection, uh, recalibration. Uh, Sam, thankfully, has written me a nice long list of questions that I'll be working through personally and then meeting with him to work through. And then I meet with uh, Mike Silvati, one of the pastors of Christ the King, to work through those as well, as well as just some other reading books for spiritual refreshment. And then uh, the second half, it falls under the category of research. Uh, so reading specific topics, writing, and such like that. So I'm very much looking for, forward to that. I'm very thankful we have a sabbatical policy, uh, which leads into the second one. I'm thankful uh, that I'm not in like an emergency place to need a, a sabbatical in that sense. So some of you may have experienced that where uh, pastors tend the that uh, role tends to have a very high burnout and high uh, dropout rate, uh, sometimes for very good reasons, but sometimes for very hard reasons. Uh, and I've known many friends through, throughout the years, uh, three just this past year that um, are, are out of the pastoral ministry. Um, so I'm thankful that I'm not at uh, that place, um, which leads into the third thing I'm thankful for, uh, which is there's there's been few times at Crossway. So I've been here for 12 and a half years pastoring. Uh, there's only been a few times where I've felt and I said, I can't do this anymore. You know, uh, I think, I don't know if, I don't know if I've ever told the story where there was, there was one Sunday where it was, it was about uh, 9.50 or 9.55 and Danica and I were in a room together and I'm not, I don't cry much, but I was crying and I just looked at her. I said, I, I can't go out there. I, I, I can't go out and preach this morning. And, uh, in God's kindness, uh, God ministered to me through her. And I don't remember what she said. She was just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say here. Um, but the, the times have been few. This has been a, a great blessing to me and my family. This has been a great place to be a pastor. And I, I, love, I love being a pastor at Crossway. Um, and so the last thing, uh, I am very thankful for the group of elders that God has raised up uh, here at, at this church. Uh, Kirk and Sam and Joby. Uh, I consider them my friends. Uh, they've corrected me, rebuked me, uh, encouraged me through the years. So um, I'm very, very grateful to God for those men. Uh, and I'm thankful. I, I have absolutely zero fear or hesitation with being, me being gone. Uh, who knows? Things might run smoother with, without me clunking things up. You know? <laughs> uh, but I'm very thankful um, for that. So those are the things I wanted to say. Uh, let's jump into the text. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of review here as we go into Ruth. We'll hit chapters 3, verse 1 to 4, 2, or 4, 12 uh, today. <clears throat> and then next week, we got our Mr. Nick Matula, first sermon at Crossway uh, for us. He'll, he'll finish off the book. Um, if you remember, the book opens, and we have Naomi, uh, by the end of chapter 1, a, a bitter woman. Uh, her family had left. Uh, they were in Israel in Bethlehem. They left to go to Moab. There was a famine in the land during the time of Judges, so it was a very bad period, uh, as many of us remember as we just went through Judges. Uh, her husband dies in Moab. 
Then her children, her two sons, marry Moabite women, which the relationship with Moab and Israel has not been good up until this point. And wouldn't you know it, but her sons die. And now Naomi is left uh, this widow in Moab, the lowest on the totem pole. And she comes back to Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem with uh, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabite. But yet when she shows up, even then, she says, I have nothing. And at the end of the chapter, she says, I, I went out full and God has brought me back empty. And she actually thinks God, God's hand is against her. So that's the end of chapter one. Uh, we move into chapter two, and last week we saw a little bit of a, a spark happen in Naomi by the end of the chapter, because Ruth uh, sacrificially goes out to the fields where she very well could be assaulted uh, to glean. And remember, there's harvesters who are paid employees, essentially, to harvest the field. And then you have gleaners who uh, just pick up the scraps. They, they don't actually provide any help to the, to the owner of the field. They just clean up whatever's left behind the harvesters. And so they just kind of, it's usually assigned for the lowest of the low in the community. Either the orphans, the widows, or the foreigners can go out and glean in the fields. But oftentimes it's very dangerous work because they'll be mistreated. But Ruth goes out, and wouldn't you know it, but she lands in this field. Uh, we know it as the providence of God. She goes to this field owned by Boaz. And we're introduced to Boaz at the beginning of chapter 2 as this worthy man, a man of character who fears the Lord, and also a man of resources. And Boaz finds, or Ruth finds favor before Boaz, who provides for her abundantly anything Ruth could, could have imagined, and also protects her. And so the assignment then, uh, both from Boaz and from Naomi to Ruth, is to stay in that field. Do not go try to find food anywhere else or else you might get hurt. Stay in the field of Boaz and you will be protected and provided for. And so we, and we saw at the end of verse, uh, chapter 2 there that she was there for the barley harvest and the wheat harvest for roughly two months, and then it's over. So now the question in the air as you read the book is, now what are they going to do? That was really great two months. They were provided for, but what are we going to do? Now, thankfully, Naomi has introduced a, a, a theme to us that's going to pick up the rest of the book. In chapter 2, verse 20, she's, she tells us that uh, Boaz is a close relative, a redeemer. It's the first time the word shows up. And then 21 more times in chapter 3 and chapter 4, this word keeps coming up, the redeemer. So this is a very clear theme. The Redeemer is going to help. So you might think of the whole book this way. Chapter 1 is the necessity of a Redeemer. That's their only hope is to, is to make it, is to have a Redeemer. Chapter 2 is the identification of a Redeemer. A Redeemer is spotted. Chapter 3 is the pursuit of a Redeemer. And then chapter 4, we actually get to see the Redeemer in action. So what I want to do here is we jump right before we go into the text. I do want to give a little bit of interpretive help, which I hope will help you as you read your Bible for years to come. I want to talk a little bit about something that we call typology. Many of you have probably heard the term typology. Let me just kind of walk us through it. Uh, and hopefully then as we go through the passage, you'll be like, oh, yeah, okay, that's clearly what's going on here. So typology, first... Um, let me say, the, the, the whole idea of typology is based on the assumption that there's a divine author of Scripture. They're written through human authors, 40-plus authors, but there's a divine author who is inspiring the Scripture, but also a divine author of history, right? So the history is not just kind of happening by chance. God is the author of history, and so all of this is based off that assumption. Let me define typology for you. I would say it like this. Typology is a person, an event, 
or an aspect of the ceremonial, ceremonial system ordained by God to have a particular function in biblical history, yet pointing beyond itself, specifically for our discussion, prefiguring the Messiah. So let's say that again. Typology is when you have a, a person, an event, or an aspect of the ceremonial system ordained by God to, to have a real function in redemptive history, recorded, and yet that reality that we read in the scriptures is actually pointing beyond itself to something even greater, specifically prefiguring the Messiah and his work. So let me give you an illustration of that might, that might help. All right, I have a couple here, Matchbox cars. This one's a Jeep. I, have no, I don't know cars, so I don't know what that thing is, but it's like some sports car, okay? Now, this is not the real deal, right? This is a, a Jeep, it says. I don't know what kind of Jeep, but it's a Jeep, and it's a, it's a picture of it. You know, you can kind of see inside. The doors don't even work. There's not a real engine in here, but it's a picture of it. It gives us somewhat of an image of the real deal. Now, if somebody wanted to purchase this Jeep for me, this would make the illustration better. We could have it right here, right? But we could see, this is a, a, a picture of it. You can act, there's a real function with it. Somebody gave this to my son, he can play with it. Uh, but it actually is meant to help us understand what does what the real Jeep look like, okay? Uh, that's, that's the illustration. Uh, here are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, uh, talking to the people, he says, you, you, your fathers ate the manna in the desert, and yet they still died. I'm the true bread that came down from heaven, and if you eat from me, you will live forever. So hear that, and now let me explain this, what's going on. In typology, you have two elements, okay, and they're being compared to one another. Okay? You have what's called the type and the anti-type. This would be the type. This is, it, it looks like it. The anti-type means to be in place of the type would, would be the real Jeep. So in the, in the illustration, the manna, that Jesus talks about from the Old Testament is the type, the anti-type being Jesus and the redemption he's going to provide, okay? The, the manna was pointing to a greater, greater redemption, okay? So you have type, anti-type, and the study of how those correlate, the type and anti-type, that's what, that's what typology means. It's the study of the types, okay? Now you always have two things present when we think of typology. One is that there's a, a true correspondence between type and anti-type, okay? Jesus says uh, that you had bread that sustained, the, the, the fathers had bread that sustained them. It, helped, it gave them nourishment. I have bread that will nourish you, okay? So there, there's a true correlation here, right? But in typology, there's always escalation, okay? It's all, there's, there's a built-in limitation in, in the type. It's not the real deal. Okay, the real deal is always escalating it. So Jesus says, look, your, your forefathers ate the manna in the desert and they were nourished by it, but they still died. I come and give better bread. That's uh, better bread, better subs. <laughs> Just came through my head. So Jesus, Jesus says, I, I come and I give the better bread because I not only nourish you now, I nourish you forever and you'll never die. See, there, there's always correlation in typology, but always escalation. And that's the key. Now, if you want further information for how to, how to kind of see this, uh, we actually, just the podcast released last 
Monday we did a podcast on the Church Theology Podcast talking about that because there's, there's good guardrails. It's not going down the, the road of like allegorical interpretation. It's something different. Uh, this is typology, uh, which actually Old Testament and New Testament give us very clear warrant uh, for this. So I think there's very good guardrails, uh, but you can get further information from that, or if you want other resources, let me know. So let me give you what I think is the main point of our passage today. And then we'll show, I'll show you how there's escalation in typology, and then we'll just simply read it, and hopefully you'll say, yeah, that's totally right. Okay? Um, all right, here's how I would say the main point of this passage coming up from chapter 3, verse 1 to 4.12, is that Boaz willingly paid the cost to redeem the needy to the inheritance. Okay, so just take my word for it for right now. Boaz willingly paid the cost to redeem the needy to the inheritance. Okay, so the correlation here is just as Boaz willingly redeemed, Jesus willingly redeems, right? The needy, the helpless. But here's the escalation then. Boaz willingly redeemed Ruth and Naomi, right? At great cost, but it was financial. It was resources, Jesus, though, pays the greater cost. It's not financial. It's his very life. The eternal Son of God took on flesh and gave his whole self unto death, even death on a cross. Okay, so there's escalation in the cost, but then there's also escalation in the inheritance. You'll see in the passage that part of what's going on is Boaz needing to redeem the land so that that inheritance can be passed on. Now, that's a great, great thing, to keep the inheritance Right? But this world is perishing. The inheritance that Ruth and Naomi will get to cherish and pass on is perishing. But the inheritance that Jesus uh, uh, pays to redeem us to is imperishable, according to Peter. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Just a greater inheritance. So we might say it this way then. Just as Boaz willingly paid the cost to redeem the needy to the inheritance, we would say Jesus willingly paid the greater cost to bring us a greater redemption to a greater inheritance. So as we read it then, I think this is the way you should read the passage. I think we should get to the end of the passage. We get into the text. We try to experience the scene. We, we see the faces on the characters. We would want to walk away and say, man, Boaz, that dude's amazing. And Ruth is so blessed. Naomi is so blessed. They were so helpless. This is wonderful how great Boaz is, because he really is. The, the author paints him that way. What a, what a great sacrificial cost he paid. And then you step back and go, whoa. If, if, if a mere human, sinful though he be, can do that, how great is our Lord? How great is Jesus Messiah? Better than Boaz, a greater cost to a greater inheritance. Hallelujah. And so I think that's how this typology type stuff should work. So let's work through the text, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, I would just say just a quick disclaimer. You know, I'm up here kind of just trying to help us think through the passage. It's okay if sometimes the facial expression I give, you think, well, that's probably not how it happened. That's, that's okay. And I'm not, I'm not good at uh, theater or nothing like that. And that's not the point. The point is the Bible's exciting, right? This, this, this scene really happened. So we want to get there somehow and just try to envision it. 
All right, chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, who's, with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Ruth, wash and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. We'll pause there. So now we're at, we're at the end of the season. It's time to winnow the harvest, to go to the threshing floor. So the threshing floor would have been, uh, mo most fields would have had a threshing floor. It would be a hard surface, typically at the end of the field, up on a hill if you could. And uh, some of you may be aware of this. Basically, you take a pitchfork and you take some of the grain, you throw it up in the air, and you want to do it when there's a, a light wind. That's why the nighttime can be good. It's not too strong of a wind. But you throw up the grain in the air, and the wind will take uh, the, what's lighter, which would be the stalk and the chaff, and blow it away. And then what falls on the hard surface is the grain, right? And then you sweep that up. So uh, Naomi, uh, realizing like this, hey, this is a this is a this is a nice night for winnowing. Boys is going to be at the threshing floor. This this could be the opportunity. And what she's going to do is uh, what you might call uh, possibly at least a visual custom, uh, something that Boaz would have picked up, might be a little bit strange to us, uh, but think of it this way. If you were walking uh, through a park and you looked over and you saw a man and a woman kind of staring at each other, maybe holding hands and talking, and then all of a sudden you saw the man step back for a second, reach in his pocket, pull out a little box, get down on one knee, he opens a box, right? Now, what, what do you think just happened? You didn't hear any conversation? He's probably asking her to marry him, right? This is, it's a visual custom that we do. You don't have to hear the words. You just assume, oh, yeah, that's what's going on. Most likely, that's what's going on here. Uh, Ruth uh, is, is to go, you know, clean up, take a shower, anoint yourself with some nice perfume, get dressed, go down to the, to the threshing floor, observe where he lies down, and when he sleeps go over, uncover his feet, and lie down, possibly mimicking what it looks like for a couple to lay in bed as a married couple. Whatever it is, Boaz understands exactly what's being asked, which is for uh, Boaz to take her as his wife. So all Naomi can do now is wait. If you remember chapter 2, she starts out in the house, Ruth leaves, then the action comes back to the house. Same thing in chapter 3. Naomi sends Ruth out. Naomi now waits. And as our famous theologian Tom Petty used to say, the waiting is the hardest part, right? That's, but that's where Naomi is. She's going to have to wait. Uh, every day you see one more card. Did you know that's the second line of that chorus? The waiting is the hardest part. Every day you see one more card. Yeah, ponder that. Nick's got a good theory on it, though. Nonetheless, Naomi's got to wait, and we go with Ruth. Uh, let's go with her in verse 7. Uh, when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. Not, not, most likely not drunk, but just uh, relaxed or whatever. Uh, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, 
Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At, uh, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. All right, we'll pause there. This is actually a dramatic scene here. Uh, so she comes in real quiet, not to disturb him. She lies down, and it's probably maybe an hour goes by, her just laying there waiting. And suddenly he gets startled. You've probably experienced this. If you want to experience being startled at night and not knowing what's going on, ask uh, the Matulas if you can let Denali, their dog, come over and babysit the, her. <laughs> I don't remember. This is how I remember it in my mind. I could be wrong, but I remember sleeping. Denali's over, and uh, all of a sudden I hear a noise, and it's like, and I'm like, Denali's right there. Hey, <laughs> want to play? I'm like, no, go back to bed. No, no, no. How about you feed me? What do you want to do? I'm ready. Throw, let's go get the tennis ball. I go, come on. <laughs> She's a happy dog. She's a great dog. She really is a great dog. But there you have, boys, now think of it. We, we live in a city, many of us, right? The lights, it's, it's kind of bright. You wake up and you can see something. He can't see nothing, probably. They're out in the middle. Of the, they're not in the city. The fields are outside of the city, and there's not street lights, so it's just dark, and he's startled, and there's a woman laying at his feet, and who is this? Who, who are you? And Ruth responds, uh, Pointing back, really, to chapter 2, uh, I'm your servant, spread your wings over me. This is, this is the same language from chapter 2, if you remember, when Bo, uh, Boaz tells Ruth, I know, who, I know who you are. You remember this? Where, where he says, you left your mother and your father and your gods, your homeland, and you came to seek shelter under the wings of God. Right, under the wings of Yahweh. Remember that, that that's imagery that you can watch on, on TV or YouTube or whatever. You can watch birds protect their young from the, from the weather or from the sun, they'll hold their uh, wings up, or even from uh, predators and such. So here, Boaz essentially saying, you are to be God's manifestation on earth through how God's wings will protect me. Boaz, I want you to spread your wings over me. I want you to protect me. I want you to take me into your house and be, take care of me. Now this, this is actually quite stunning because this is very countercultural. You have to think, like, here, here is the servant asking the master to marry her. This, this is the outsider asking one very high on the social ladder to take her into his home. This is the empty-hander who has nothing to offer asking the one with all the resources. And this is the tension moment, right? Because what is he going to say? I mean, maybe he'll say, Ruth... I mean, for real. What does a girl like you have? It's just not going to work. We're from, we're from two, two different groups. We, we can't do it. And besides, what, what, do you, what do you have to offer? People will look at us funny. This just isn't right, Ruth. But, you know, we've been reading the story, so we, we think Rue or Boaz is going to respond differently, and sure enough, he does uh, at verse 10. And he said, Ruth, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. 
I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now, as the reader, we're thinking, okay, this is, this is getting good. All right, verse, verse 12, And now it is true, Ruth, that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. It's like, whoa. I thought we had Canaan and D in the background, you know, walking down the aisle, and that's, somebody just missed their note. Whoa, one of the strings fell off the violin. What happened there? A, a closer redeemer. This isn't good. Verse 13, remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. No, not good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to do it, well, then as the Lord lives, Ruth, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. And then they go to sleep if they could sleep at all. Uh, and of course, in the, uh, they couldn't, she couldn't stay all night. She had to leave before uh, others woke up. Uh, the text seems to indicate that they didn't do anything uh, ungodly uh, during that time. Verse 14. Uh, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but she rose before one could recognize another. And she said, or he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and put it on her, and then she went into the city. Now, uh, some of the, most of the actual ancient manusc uh, Hebrew manuscripts, uh, they, at the end of verse 15 there, then she went into the city, actually say he went into the city. Now, regardless what you have happening, he is going to go into the city, chapter 4. What you have happening is he gives her a load of food, probably 30 to 60 pounds of grain, and he goes one way, she goes the other way. He's going to the city because he's going to go to court uh, to, to work, sort this matter out. She's going home to Naomi. Now, if we're going to get back to the house here to see Naomi, and you've got to try to remember, well, what did she do all night? You know, Ruth has been gone. She's waiting anxiously. Who knows what she looks like? Uh, I know what my house would look like. If, uh, if my wife is anxiously waiting for something with excitement, uh, the house gets super organized. Now, that's not everybody, I'm sure. Um, so this actually, when she was pregnant with one of our kids uh, once, uh, I woke up at like 2 or 3 in the morning, and I went into the bathroom, and there's Danica with things all over the floor. And I was like, what, what are you doing? She said, well, I, was, I couldn't sleep, so I was thinking about how, how I could reorganize the closet in the bathroom. I think, yeah, I was thinking the same thing, you know. <laughs> what <are> you <laughs> so Ruth, or Naomi, I'm sure, is excited, anxious, waiting to find out what's going to happen. And finally she shows up carrying a boatload of grain. Verse 16, when she came to, to her mother-in-law, she said, how did, you, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, because he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. That, that's the same language, actually, in chapter 1. Remember, uh, Naomi called her, herself empty. The bitter woman. I left full and I came back empty. This is, this is Boaz's way of telling Naomi now, through Ruth, I got you. You're no longer going to be empty. Naomi, there's no more reason to fear. You're not going to be alone. We're going to sort this out. We're going to take care of you. It's going to happen. Sit tight. And that's exactly what she tells Ruth to do. She replies, wait, my daughter, 
until you learn how the matter turns out, because the man will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. Okay, we're going to keep going. Buckle up. The story is going to get better. Verse 1. Now Boaz had gone into the, to the gate and sat down there. The gate would be, this is like the public courtroom in, uh, in that culture. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, he came by. And so Boaz said to him, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. They're setting up the courtroom here. Now, as the, the reader, uh, when, when we read that the Redeemer came through, uh, it's, you, you don't necessarily have the best taste in your mouth, right? It's sort of like if you're reading this in a group, you might, the crowd might say, Boo! Right? In fact, the author actually tips us off to that. The, the way the ESV translates this, uh, turn aside friend, actually makes it sound like a friendly exchange, which, not that it wasn't friendly, but the Hebrew actually uses a, an idiom, which is, could easily be translated as so-and-so. So one, one translation actually uh, translates it as, come, what's your name? And the author intentionally does not name this man, because he's not worth naming. Because he's unwilling to do what God is calling him to do for the vulnerable. So the author, I'm not even going to say his name. And so here comes Mr. So-and-so. So Boaz grabs him and they sit down. Verse 2, he took ten men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said, uh, I'm sorry. So they, so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab. She is selling the parcel of land that belonged to her relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, hey, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, well, great, redeem it. But if you will not, well, then tell me so that I may know uh, because there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And Mr. So-and-so said... I will redeem it. And there's our, our Miss Noah to Canon and D again. What? He's going to redeem it. Then Boaz said, that, You know the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth that Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. I'll pause there. We got a little bit of background here to, to make sure we know what's going on here. So this idea of redeemer, um, redeemer, uh, generally speaking, has the idea of land, and that's why uh, Boaz introduces this as land. So what would happen? Uh, remember that the, the land of Israel was not the people's land. This was God. God was the owner of the land, and so God had dispersed the land to the tribes and to the clans, and the land was meant to stay in the family. Okay. And so if, if a family found themselves in financial distress and they had to sell the, food, sell the, the land for food or whatever, one of the clan's uh, family, like a family from the clan, so a little branching out a little bit, from the extended family, they could go purchase that field and they could use that field. So the, the, owner, the new owner, because they don't actually own the land, the one using it, is required to then sell it to the, one of the clan's people who now can use the land. They can you know, make crops on it or whatever. Uh, and they'll benefit from the land, but at the year of Jubilee, that land still goes back to the original family. 
okay? Provided somebody's still alive, right? So the parents had kids on some level. Now, if they didn't have kids, then the person from the clan that purchased the land actually now owns the land. So they, their actual land that, that they own has grown. So in this setting, uh, this Mr. So-and-so actually sees it as, hey, this is a great financial deal because Naomi's old. She's got no kids. If I buy this land, I not only get to use it for 10 years, 15 years, however long till the year of Jubilee, and then the year of Jubilee, it's mine. I'm taking it. Now, Boaz then pipes in and says, well, hold on a second. Yes, you know, Moses doesn't lay out every single scenario in the law. There's something what we call the spirit of the law, not necessarily the letter of the law. The law was written to care for the vulnerable. The law was not written for the redeemer to get financially wealthy. So if there's any, any, any way that we can actually care for the vulnerable, that's what the law is meant to do, then we must do that. If there's any way. Now, there's also another thing possibly at play, or at least the mixture of these two, how they, Boaz seems to get there. There's something called the Levite marriage vow. So the Levite marriage vow was when a, a man would die and he would, his widow would be left behind. With, they didn't have any children. Uh, the man who died, his brother, was to marry this woman and give her children and raise the family, but then all the inheritance goes to this woman and her kids, right? Because they will carry it on. This is a way to care for the vulnerable. What it's not meant to do is to sexually exploit the, the widow, just like Judah's one son did, right? So it's actually to care for the widow. So this boy seems to be taking both of these or one of these or either way, but he's trying to get at the heart of the law, the spirit of the law, is to care for the vulnerable. And so he says, hold on a second. I realize Naomi's old. She's not having any more kids, but the, let's not forget that Moabite. She was married into the family. And remember, the spirit of the law is any way we can care for this family. We're going to do it. And yes, it will cost you, Mr. So-and-so. It'll cost you a lot. Because you'll have to use your resources on this, on this field. You'll gain a little bit at times, but you're going to pour a lot into that. And you're going to pour a lot into Ruth. I get it. At the year of Jubilee, though, it's all theirs. And it, what happens is it's sort of like what's going on. This, this individual, Mr. So-and-so, it's sort of like in our land we have laws where, like, if you have an elderly, um, someone elderly in your home, a family member, you can actually get paid from the... I don't know if it's the state or the federal government or whatever it is, you can get money to be the, the primary caretaker, right? So you think of it this way. If, if somebody was saying, yes, I'm going to be the primary caretaker of my, my mother who's old and she's, she's got dementia, uh, and so they start taking in this check, but they actually don't do anything for the, for the mom. Just kind of leaves her sit over there, just doesn't really pay attention to them, and you kind of like would talk to them, and aren't, like, aren't you supposed to be actually caring for her? And they're like, well, no, legally what I'm doing is, I, this is totally legal. It's like, well, yeah, I get that. It's totally legal. But that's not what the law is for. Not so that you can just get rich. I don't mean, I'm not saying to get rich, but not that you can just kind of fill your pocketbook, but to actually care. Like that money is supposed to give you the, the resources you need to actually care for that person. But this man, Mr. So-and-so, he says, verse Six, then the Redeemer, he said, I can't redeem that for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. You take my right of redemption. I can't redeem that. 
There's, I'm not willing to pay that. That's not worth it to me. It's too high of a cost. I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to sacrifice and give up anything uh, for them. At which point, as the reader now, we say, it's good. I mean, sad that, that this man acted that way, but let's keep him named as Mr. So-and-so. Because we got Boaz. Verse 7, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. One person drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the, the manner of attesting in Israel. Basically a receipt, right? We print off receipts, they give sandals. You know, this is a different time. Verse 8, So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Hey, you buy it for yourself, he took off his sandal, and then Boaz, uh, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi and all that belong, all that belong to Limelech and all that belong to Kilion and to Machlon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Now, you can see what the author does in this chapter, then. He's intentionally trying to compare Mr. So-and-so to the gem of Boaz. This guy was not willing to pay the cost, and Boaz is willing to put everything on the line to care for Ruth and Naomi. And if you're reading this in a crowd, just as much as you were booing for Mr. So-and-so, now the place erupts because Ruth is going to be redeemed in verse 11 that's actually what the crowd does virtually then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said we are witnesses may the lord make the woman who is coming into your house like rachel and leah who together built up the house of israel may you act worthily in ephrathah and be renowned in bethlehem and may your house be like the house of perez whom tamar bore to judah because of the offspring that the lord will give you by this woman Amen. So there you have it. That's how I would sum up the story. Boaz willingly paid the cost to redeem the needy to the inheritance. And like I said, this is simply a small picture, just a small, small picture of what our Lord did. Because Jesus willingly paid the greater cost to redeem the helpless like us. To redeem us to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Brothers and sisters, this is the reality that we live in. If you are blood-bought, if you are one who has given your heart to Christ and trusted in him alone for salvation, this is a picture of our Lord and what he has done for us and the willingness by which he was willing to pay the cost to redeem us. So I just want to reflect on that and see if the music can light up in our hearts a little bit. Jesus willingly paid that cost for you if you are blood-bought. I think sometimes it's hard for us to trust that equation. Because the reality is, uh, the more you understand about God, and the more you try to contemplate the fact that God knows everything about us, it does not make sense why God would willingly pay the price to bring us to himself. Part of the problem that, or reason why it's hard is because all the human relationships you experience, you experience the opposite. 
I mean, how many times do you see in relationships, the more people actually learn about one another, the less willing they are to serve one another. Right? Is that not what happens in a lot of divorces? The wedding day was great. It was exciting. It looked like they'd be married forever. You don't have to get farther down the line. But you start hearing him saying, I didn't know that about her. I didn't know that about him. And suddenly, as we feel, we have this fear deep within us, the more we're exposed so that other people see who we truly are, we're afraid. We're afraid that we'll be rejected. Because you are pretty ugly inside. You have deep flaws. You have things that are annoying to other people. You have sins that are very painful for other people to experience. And so we're afraid. It feels a lot safer to cover up. But brothers and sisters, we cannot cover up from God Almighty. There's nothing you can hide. You can hide a lot of things from us. You can hide things from your spouse. But you cannot hide things from Almighty God. He knows every thought, every single action you've ever done. That's a terrifying thought. But the reality is, in the face of that, God seeing everything, all your blemishes, all your shortcomings, and still says, yep, that's the one I want. Why? Because of you? No. If it was based on you, he would have passed you long, long ago. But it's because of him. He simply willingly says, that's the one I want. That's amazing. God willingly, brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Christ, he willingly gave himself for you. And that should give us deep rest. Deep rest, because you're going to experience a lot more bumps and bruises along the way. Your sin will continue to be exposed to you. God, continue to peel layers off us like layers of onion. And as you keep growing, you say, is that true of me? Yep, and it gets even worse. Just keep going. And yet still, God willingly gave himself for you. And who did that? Jesus did that. There's nobody on earth that would give him of themselves that sacrificially for you. And so uh, and a reality like this should cause our hearts to exalt Christ, to exalt God, the E-X-A-L-T, you know, like to exalt someone, to put them up and hold them up and say, he's my master, he's my Lord, I will come under, I will come under his wings. Lord, I will do as you say, what you say is right is right, what you say is wrong is wrong, I want to be yours, I want to follow you. And at the same time, it should cause us to exult in the cost, exult in the cross. That's E-X-U-L-T. You know, there's E-X-A-L-T, which is to hold something up. E-X-U-L-T is to go from the inside out. It's the gut response of celebrating, rejoicing. Should, we should rejoice in the cross. Now, that, that actually is a very strange thing to the world. We celebrate, we rejoice in the death of our master. Or as Paul says it, far be it for me to boast except for in the cross of Christ. I won't boast about anything about, except for the cross, the form of death that took my Lord to the grave. And why? Because it was the death that secured it, that secured us into the family of God. 
That was the cost of redemption for us to bring us to the inheritance. And so may God give us deep hope in the inheritance to come that's undefiled, unfading, imperishable, nothing like you'll ever see in this world. Everything you see that you lay eyes on today is perishable, it's defiled, and it's fading. So the way that Peter talks about the glory to come, he says, I can't even describe it except it's, it's the opposite of what you know. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's un, unfading. That's where we're headed. That's the inheritance that we have. And when we hear that music, you know what that does? It actually makes us boys like people. Now, one of the, one of the ways sometimes people preach through the book of Ruth it's constantly like, let's be like Ruth, let's be like Boaz. And you might notice the last three weeks, haven't said a word about that. Because that's not what the primary focus is. The primary focus is on the redemption that is given to the needy, which we are the needy. But what happens when we receive the redemption of Christ is we actually become like Boaz. And so what happens, this is a message totally opposite from the world. The world tells us, as you grow older, and as you get more resources, you have more time for yourself to spend it on yourself. The gospel says, no, 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 no. Actually, it's the opposite. The more and more you understand the grace of God in Christ Jesus to free you from this world, to, to store up an inheritance for you, and the more you receive uh, the grace of God in Christ and understand it and hear the music, you know what happens? It changes you from the inside out. So you say, yeah, I have more time. Yeah, I have more resources, and I'm going to spend it on other people because I don't, need to, I don't need to live for this earth anymore. This is not my home. I'm not a citizen here. I'm a citizen there, and we will live and serve and sacrifice for the sake of other people. So I don't think the message is to go become like Boaz. It's go listen to the music of the Redeemer, Christ Jesus, died for us, paying the cost, and that will change us to be more like Boaz. And finally, brothers and sisters, will that not give us strength to endure to the end. There's still a race to be run. Let us lay aside every sin and weight that easily constrains us and run the race ahead with faith and endurance. Endurance is not something you can just turn on. You can't just flip a switch and wake up and say, you know, I'm going to endure today. Endurance comes from the power that we receive from the gospel. And so this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper, let us hear the elements proclaim to us the sufficiency of the death of Christ, the full payment that was paid on our behalf, and the inheritance that it has secured for us, that it may empower us for the week ahead. If you're here today and you are a follower of Christ, uh, it's not about perfection, about, but direction. If you're walking in repentant faith, the table is open to you. Uh, we ask that you grab the elements and return to your seat. We will partake together. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, or if you uh, claim to be a follower of Christ but are not walking in repented faith, we ask that you not partake. But please come now and return to your seats and we'll, we will partake together. Brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus paid the greater cost with his very life willingly for you. It has been fully paid. There is no more for you to pay. The wrath of God has been spent on our Lord. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this, it is for you. Brothers and sisters, we cannot see it now, nor can our minds imagine 
what we shall see one day. The blood of Christ has secured for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. One day we shall see it, and the Lord has promised to get us there. Let us receive his promise in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.